This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Or you're just generally supporting the projects of other people in the lab. Shipping things. There's a lot of mailing things in my lab. I don't know if that still goes on. Yeah, shipping, knowing how to ship dry ice, (laughs) you know, all these types of things. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we open the mailbag to learn about setting boundaries, earning a master's degree on the way to a PhD, and more. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 183. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, October, super busy for me. I don't know about you. Yeah, October has been a little bit busy on my end, too. I actually have some work travel to a conference coming up in a few weeks, and I don't I'm know sorry, what to what do is, with myself. <laughs> what is that conference that you mentioned? I don't understand what that is. Yeah, it's this weird thing where people with similar professional interests fly across the country to come together in person to talk about stuff. It's really strange. It must be a new thing. Something from the before times. Yeah, I I also have been taking risks with my health. Uh, So bringing you today's uh, ethanol selection, Josh, we have the Claw Hammer Oktoberfest from Highland Brewing in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, while I didn't go to the Asheville Oktoberfest, I did fly up to see my brother in Boston we went out to the Harvard Square Oktoberfest and had an amazing time. It was just, I don't know if anybody listening has been to the Harvard Square Oktoberfest. It's tens of thousands of people, allegedly, and really exciting and fun. Did you have any of those large steins full of beer? No, it's very odd the way that they serve ethanol. You have to be standing inside these uh, cordons. They have like a little area where you are allowed to be. And uh, you drink out of plastic cups, just like the ancient Germans did. <laughs> but the fun part is, and, and this is what's really unique about Boston. I have never seen this anywhere else. There are marching bands composed of adults. So you know how in high school, everybody plays some musical instrument in the marching band, and then they put it away and it collects dust for the rest of eternity. For some reason in Boston, it's a thing where adults past their high school years pick up these instruments form their own kind of ad hoc marching bands. And there are tons of them. There are probably so these, 20 these marching are, bands. These are marching, marching bands, not just bands. Like they don't play, just play together at home, but they have some specific marching they do. They well. definitely did some marching at the Oktoberfest. Now, I don't know if they also play other venues and events, but each one has its own style. They they choose their own kind of way to dress. It's obviously not formal uniforms, but they have a style. Uh, they pick their own music, and I just love it. I just love the idea of taking that skill that you spent all those years developing and continuing to use it. And one of the, I think, I don't know if the whole group or the whole ensemble is called this, but at least one of them is called the Honks. And so you can look up the Honks Boston and find a reference to this. That That is fascinating, Dan. Uh, it's ironic you mentioned that when I was in, in middle and high school, I was a trombone player in the band. This is for you, Josh. And recently, my, my son now is at an age in school where they had the opportunity to play an instrument if they would like, and he chose the trombone. So we actually uh, dusted off my old trombone that was in the basement of my parents' house 
and is now here. And I am happy to report I actually remembered at least the B flat scale that I was able to uh, show off for my son. So it's not fully <laughs> rusted. No, it's it's in great shape. It's been in a case. You know, it's fun. It's fun. So, well, that's great, Dan. Thanks for sharing that story. And I'm glad you got to go out to uh, experience some Oktoberfest celebration. I'm, I'm also glad uh, I'm enjoying this Clawhammer Oktoberfest uh, that I believe I picked up when I was uh, you did? with you in North Carolina. Um, I picked it out because, one, I love Oktoberfest. Two, I also love uh, banjo music and Clawhammer a style of playing banjo. So that's what drew me. But this is a good one. This is a good representation of a solid uh, Oktoberfest for those who celebrate. Little known fact, claw hammer, also a style of hammer. <laughs> there you go. All right, Dan. Well, we have some people to thank. Wanted to give a special thank you to our friends at Promega. Are you exploring a new career path? Taking next steps, thinking about a career change from applying to internships or nailing that job interview. Or if you'd just like to learn about next steps, Promega's professional skills and development page has all the resources you need to jumpstart your career. You can find all of this at promega.com slash hello career. All right, Josh. Well, we will jump right into the mailbag. It's getting full and we have some questions from listeners. So let's see what they have to say. All right, Dan, always great to get questions from listeners, and we have a few that we're going to talk about today. Yep. First one is a clarifying question. It comes from Cindy. She writes, hi, guys. A while ago, one of you mentioned that the number of applications to spots at your university. I was discussing this with my brother-in-law, who's a biochemist cancer research scientist. Anyway, I was certain you said you received 1,800 applications for 300 spaces in your program. He thinks that you meant that number is for all the graduate school, as in all programs. So I just wonder if you could clarify. Thanks, Cindy. Josh, this is something you said, not something I said. So can you help set us straight on how many applications and how many spaces and what the size of a program might be? Yeah, certainly. And I can't remember exactly what I said and when I said it, but you're right. This was certainly something I was likely talking about. Um, in my previous job um, as an admissions director for a biomedical PhD program, um, so let's, let's talk about this. Let's see if I can clarify uh, what I think I was probably referring to uh, and might help Cindy out. So the 1800 applications number would have specifically been for our biomedical sciences PhD program. Um, i was at a large state institution. And so the number of applications for all graduate programs uh, would be much, much higher than that. Uh, that being said, the number I quoted is still pretty big, 1,800 applications for one program. Uh, but one thing that's important to note is our program was what's referred to as an umbrella program, which we've talked a little bit on the show before. But as a reminder, that means that by applying to our umbrella biomedical PhD program, uh, you actually had access to 14 different PhD programs. So, for example, this might this was a biomedical sciences program. However, by coming into that program, you had access to the microbiology department or the neuroscience department or toxicology or, or 14 different programs. So, whereas all of those applications were for this one program, those students who came in actually filtered out into 14 different programs. But again, these were all biomedical in focus. Yeah, sort of on the order of 130 people applying to each of those departments had they been separate application processes and assuming that people wanted to apply to them in an even way. Um, one other point of clarification, Dan. So Cindy mentioned 
uh, 300 spaces in the program. What I was probably referring to out of those 1,800 applications was around 300 who would then get an interview. And so one thing we've talked about on the show before, at least for biomedical PhD programs, there's usually this multiple step process where you apply and then a subset of applicants will get an interview and then a subset of those will get an offer. And usually the percent getting an offer from those who interview is pretty high. So in the case of, of this program, out of 300 who get an interview, around 200 will end up getting, getting an offer with the goal of around 100 um, filling those spaces in the program. And this is pretty typical because you know, usually students or applicants who are applying to PhD programs are applying to multiple programs too. So just because you probably had this experience, Dan, you might get an offer to two or three programs, but ultimately you choose one and you turn the others down. So programs will make more offers than they have spots to hopefully then uh, fill all the openings that they have. That makes total sense to me, Josh. And so that the math works out to something like seven students for each department that participate in that umbrella, which that feels kind of like a normal number of students maybe joining a program each year, considering that there are other students that have moved on, they stay there for five years. So that's that cohort will move through together, but they will stay for some unknown amount of time and the department has to support them. So it has to be a smaller number. One thing I wanted to ask, of those 100 students that join the umbrella program, do they distribute pretty evenly among the 14 departments or are there certain popular topics that come and go year by year? Yeah, that's a good question. And they don't. So it's it's not like out of 100, there's 100 students who come into the umbrella program, there's 14 programs, so you divide 100 by 14. And that's how it works. That's Yeah, that's actually not how it works. Um, and you might remember this, or maybe you don't, Dan, but the different departments and different programs are not all the same size. So there will be some programs that are larger, that might have more students because they have more faculty that are affiliated with that I program. Um, I can I can say f- as an example, um, you know, a more a program like our genetics and molecular biology PhD program uh, might have had a lot more students than something that was much more um, specific, like pathology, for example. So, but all this, you know, programs and our program was no different than any other. You know, we took all of that into account when thinking about the interests of the applicants and how many students to make offers to. So, um, and, and that's actually one thing that I know leaders of umbrella programs and really any program um, want to make sure, like what you don't want is if you're bringing in a hundred students who are going to filter into different departments, you'd want to be careful that you don't bring in a hundred neuroscience interested students and zero microbiology students, for example, because there just wouldn't be room in the lab, in the neuroscience labs to accommodate those students. So there's really a lot of this <laughs> sort of planning um, and estimating that goes on behind the scenes to try to make all this work out. Because again, all these departments who are part of the umbrella program, all these faculty, they want students from this process. And so they want to make sure students who are interested in the type of work that they do are going to be represented in that incoming class. So there's really a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to, to hopefully make that happen. Um, that makes total sense. And I'm sure you could start a whole podcast just on how to run <laughs> grad school recruiting and admissions programs, Josh, but I don't think a lot of people would listen. So uh, maybe we'll save that for another time. I wanted to point out, Cindy sent a little PS and I really like this. She said, I started listening to your podcast when my daughter was applying to grad school. She was fortunate to get accepted. She reached out to her PI and made a great impression. I love this because I always start the show with and the people who love them. And I sort of say it as a joke, but the reality is if you are somebody who knows somebody going into graduate school 
Uh, maybe it's your child, a niece, a cousin, whoever it is. You can listen, pass on the advice, or you can pass along the show to them. And, and I appreciate Cindy listening and writing in to, to join the conversation. Yes, thank you, Cindy. And also, if there are any other uh, people who love them out there, if you have a grad student in your life that you love, and that's how you started listening to the show, not because you yourself are going through this training, but someone you know or love is, let us know. We'd, we'd like to hear that you're out there, too. That's cool. All right, Josh, would you be willing to read us the next question? I sure will, Dan. All right, so this one comes from Veronica. And Veronica says, I just listened to the TA teaching episode and wanted to give some response. First, the MS in route, which he's referring to master's degree in route, uh, to a PhD is super important point for you to bring up. For myself, I enrolled straight in a PhD position without getting a master's first. I had no idea about the option of master's in route until I told one of my committee members that I wanted to teach, and she told me I should really work on finding out if my department does a master's in route, which, in, which it turns out is the practice of awarding a master's after a PhD student has defended. For me, this was a great relief during that critical time in my PhD when I was considering quitting. I did not end up quitting, but knowing I could quit and get something from my experience was critical and even helped me not quit just from stress. Fast forward a few years, I'm now finishing my PhD this semester, but was able to apply for a tenure-track teaching position at a nearby community college. If I had not submitted the request for my master's en route from my department, I would not have been eligible to apply for this position until my PhD was awarded. I'm sure this is true for many positions that require master's and for a lot of research fellowships. This is something not a lot of students know about. I would have never known about it, but it is now critical for me that I got that master's. I absolutely, I loved this because I remember this is an interview I did with Elena Talboy and we talked about there's this secret sneaky way of getting a master's degree during your PhD program. So the whole reason many of us sign up for a biomedical PhD program is because we get paid, uh, they pay tuition and they pay a stipend. And if you were to go into a master's program and then a PhD program, you would be paying tuition for the master's program until you finished. Um, so when she mentioned there was this way of getting a master's degree before you actually earned your PhD, I was like, I don't believe you, but we should find out. And thankfully, a listener caught that, picked it up. And in some Googling, Josh, so you can type master's degree E-N space R-O-U-T-E and route, or if you're French, en route. But I found that different places call it different things. And so you're going to need to type in your university name master's degree en route, or you maybe it's something called a continuing master's degree, or sometimes a master's in passing. And I can post a few links that I found, but the requirements for these vary by university or college. But what I typically saw is they expected some number of course credits, which makes sense. Typically, you'd have to pass some kind of qualifying exam. And you had to have been there some number of years. So you could get this master's en route between years two and three or something like that, or two and five. So I think it's really worth checking out for all the reasons that Veronica mentioned. And it just may take some Googling. And you may have this option of having a valuable degree without having to pay for it. Yeah, totally great. And thanks, Veronica, for sharing this info with us and with our listeners. Um, and also, Dan, this came from the episode that you just mentioned, the interviews, the two-part interview you did with Elena Talboy. Um, and if folks are interested in hearing those those episodes to, to learn more, you can listen to episode 179 and 180. I think that, actually, Josh, as I'm thinking about this now, would this have been good for me or bad for me? 
if I oh, you might have been out of there. I would have been out of there so fast. I think this is the case <laughs> where it's like the ships land and they burn the ships so that you can't leave. You have to fight. Uh, had I gotten my master's degree, I think I would have. <laughs> I would have said, "Peace, I'm walking." Well, this is an interesting additional option for grad students to know about, even if they're in a terminal PhD program, because the way a lot of biomedical PhD programs work, at least, is there's not a there's not a default master's built in along the way. Some programs have that. That's just part of the official stepping stone to the PhD. But for biomedical PhD programs, often the master's degree sometimes can be like a consolation prize if you've done a certain amount of work, but you just decide, you know, this PhD is not for me. There's a way you can exit with the master's degree instead of the PhD. But this um, is something beyond that. This is something different. This is getting the master's degree along with the PhD on your way, on route, on route. to the PhD. And, and that's how Elena brought it up when, when we talked about it. It was a way for you to get teaching experience because at the community college or the college level, you have to have the master's degree to even be employed in that teaching role. And I actually really like this as a way for maybe, maybe this is not on your university's website or your department's website. But I think it's totally possible you could go to your ombudsman or your director of graduate studies and say, look, I'm interested in teaching. And to do that, I need to get a master's degree. Is there something we can work out? Here's some examples of other universities that do it. Is there a way I can earn this degree uh, as part of my PhD training? And so instead of saying, hey, I need, <laughs> I need a fallback plan, please pack this parachute <laughs> for me. It's more of a positive, like, I need this to do the career that I want. And maybe you don't have this process right now, but what can we do to make it happen? And in Veronica's case, it's what enabled her to keep going. Exactly. All right, Dan, let's do one more. This last email might take us a little more time to talk through, but I think there are some great lessons in here uh, for us to unpack. So, So do you mind giving that a read? I will do it. This says, hi, Josh and Dan. Thank you both for the much needed and outstanding podcast. So apparently this person has never listened, but is very kind. (laughs) I've been a listener for a couple of years now, and now I have a question. I'm a rising first-year PhD student in a, and I'll leave out the department, program. I've already found my bandwidth attenuating. Here's some important context. I have about five years of full-time research experience and have a decent expertise in computational biology, both due to my BS degree and my research experience. This and a few other reasons made me an excellent fit for my current lab, where I began to work over a year ago, both doing research and what I call research-adjacent jobs. This and a few other reasons made me an excellent fit for my current lab, where I began to work over a year ago, both doing research and what I call research-adjacent jobs. He has that in air quotes. Now, I'm entering a PhD program as a grad student within the same lab. I still love the people in this lab and feel unbelievably privileged to do my research, but some developments have made things gradually more difficult. I put a lot of effort into being generally helpful and agreeable. My official position was a research assistant, after all. But over time, my continuing duties have all solidified into writing and become more official. However, if I I continue these responsibilities as I enter grad school this fall, as I expect they will if I don't do anything to change them, I will certainly be carrying more than my weight in the lab. This is evident when you compare my duties to other grad students in the lab. As classes begin... And for my own sanity, I need to broach the subject of putting down some of these research-adjacent jobs indefinitely. How would you suggest starting this conversation with my higher-ups? I can't help but feel selfish despite knowing rationally that my request will be fair and necessary to avoid burnout. Thanks. All right, and this comes from anonymous listener Mike. We just made up a name. That's what it is today. All right, well, hi, Mike. First of all, thanks for, for writing in. 
And I think there's a lot to discuss here, Dan. I think there's several different angles here. And, and one of the things that I wanted to first point out is Mike is joining a lab for his PhD that he already worked in as a, as a research assistant. I'm going to probably also use that term synonymous with uh, the term a lab tech, a technician in the lab, which is sort of a similar circumstance to what I think uh, Mike is talking about here. And I think there can be some advantages to joining the same lab for a PhD that you worked in previously as a technician or research assistant or as an undergrad. One, I think there's minimal ramp up period and you can really hit the ground running on your PhD. You might have even already done some work that gets you on your way towards your first publication. Yeah, time is not something, time you can't buy. That's pretty amazing resource to have, to, to know the lab, to know where things are stored, to know the people, um, the background of the research. I think those are all great things to have in your pocket when you get into grad school. Yeah, even techniques and protocols and the background information. You could probably remember, Dan, joining a new lab. There's a certain amount of time just <laughs> figuring out what the heck you're doing. And so if your interest is graduating as quickly as possible, you know, you've really cut off that, that period of, of acclimation. Uh, you can really just get started on a project. However, there's another side to that coin, and Mike highlights some of these potential challenges. First... It's important to note and to affirm for Mike that the role of a technician or a research assistant and the role of a graduate student in a lab are, in fact, different. So as a tech, you are an employee of the lab and of the PI, and your job in that position is to support the lab and the research. So in some cases, this might mean doing only support work. You're making reagents, you're maintaining cell lines or animal lines, you're taking care of paperwork, um, or you're just generally supporting the projects of other people in the lab. And this shipping could be things. some of... There's a lot of mailing <laughs> things in my lab. I don't know if that still goes on. Yeah, shipping, knowing how to ship dry ice, <laughs> you know, all these types of things. Um, th these might be the types of jobs that uh, could be put on your plate if you're an employee of the lab, like a technician or research assistant. Maybe some of these are, Mike didn't go into detail about what some of these research adjacent items were that became his responsibility, but these could be types of things like that. And those are fine. And those are typical jobs of a research assistant or a, of a technician. Some technicians may not even have their own independent project. However, I've known plenty of techs, especially those who've either been there a long time, maybe they're career technicians or research assistants, they become lab managers, or individuals like Mike who are working towards going to graduate school later on, who did all those things we just talked about, but also had their own independent projects similar to a grad student. Sounds like this was probably the case for Mike. Now, what can be tricky is when you transition from being an employee of the lab to a graduate student without any break or without much break in between. It can be really difficult, as I think Mike's experiencing, for other lab members or even the PI to make their own mental shift and develop new boundaries because, you know, they're also trying to get their work done and probably got really used to going to Mike to help out with XYZ. And that's understandable. But Mike, you're absolutely right that it's time to start having some conversations about some new boundaries now that you're a PhD student and you have a new set of goals and reasons for being there. Yeah, I don't know how often this happens where the research assistant stays on in that same lab. I'm, I'm sure it happens regularly. Uh, in many cases, that research assistant or technician gets into grad school somewhere entirely different, or maybe they go to the same university because that's where their family is. 
but they end up in a different lab. And that's totally normal too. In that case, you have the clean break. Nobody expects you to be the lab manager in that situation. But for Mike, and I think this must happen quite often where you really get to know that lab, the PI knows your work, they want to take you on as a graduate student. Now you've got to figure out how to navigate this change that doesn't feel like a change. Yeah, it can be, you know, Dan, it can be similar to even outside the grad school academia world. If you're working at a job and you have position A, and then let's say you get a promotion or something, or you get moved and now you're doing position B, but you're basically still working in the same group and with the same people. And they're like, well, yeah, I know Dan's doing position B now, but he's really good at position A. And we actually need some help with position A. Hey, Dan, you know how you used to always help us with uh, this thing you used to, to do? Ship you could dry still do ice. that, right? Yeah, you could do that still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one thing I was curious about, Mike mentioned uh, as a research assistant, some of these adjacent duties that he was taking care of were put into writing and, and his terms were they became official, I guess sort of officially his job. I think that could be a good thing because first of all, it gives you something concrete to discuss and something concrete to ask for. It's not like, hey, I feel like you're kind of generally giving me these extra things to do that aren't my job. But actually, there's these specific tasks in writing that have historically been your role when you were a research assistant, that now that you're a grad student, you can go to your PI and say, hey, you know, when I was a research assistant, my duties were ABC, as we wrote down here. But now that I'm a graduate student, I need to focus on my classes and my projects. So I would like to set aside A and B, for example. And look, I want to be clear, Dan, what I'm not saying is that as a graduate student, your individual project is the end-all be-all, and no one should ever ask you to do anything. I've worked with grad students like that, and it's super annoying. You've worked in a lab, Dan, and you know part of it is communication and collaboration and sharing ideas and working together. Um, That's an important part of science. And in most labs I worked in, there were certain jobs and tasks that benefited the lab as a whole and everyone was expected to pull their own weight. All right. So what I'm not saying here is, all right, if you're a grad student, you just get to focus on your project and the lab tech or the other people have to deal with making the reagents and shipping the primers and all this stuff. Loading the autoclave. Yeah. That would always get on my nerves when somebody in the lab felt like they were, it was the technician's job to do these quote unquote menial tasks. It's like, no, this is our lab's job. And if that's available and you're there to do it, go do it. You know what I mean? I think it's part of being a a good citizen of the lab. Definitely. And so that's not what we're advocating for, but what is important is the everyone pulling their own weight part and not just one person, especially as Mike actually said in his email, one graduate student compared to the other students in the lab, which Mike mentioned. So I think that's an important thing you could bring up uh, with the advisor. If these research adjacent tasks are really important for the lab functioning to its full potential and functioning well, if they're critical items, then I think it's time for the PI to decide either one, do we need to hire another research assistant to replace you because you're not in that, there's now a job opening (laughs) for that position or these tasks that you that Mike says are written down, A, B, and C, well, maybe Mike keeps taking care of A, and then this other grad student does B, and then the postdoc does C. Uh, but I think that's certainly, Mike, I wouldn't feel bad for having that conversation at all. Yeah, and not talking about it, I don't think is an option here, because the default mode is everybody will just expect Mike to do it, right? Uh, the PI will say, hey, this stuff keeps getting done. That's great. But maybe not know that Mike is staying too late and 
getting tired and getting burnt out um, until it's too late. And so you have to bring it up. And I, I think you've, you've provided a roadmap for that, Josh. It's not an adversarial relationship. It's a, hey, look, I used to do these three things. And now I have these six other things that are part of being a grad student. Can you help me figure out how we can shift things around and make this work? Definitely. And so two, two last things I wanted to say, say really quick, Dan. It's important to note, and we've talked about this before, that labs are extremely transient environments. So, Mike, you're probably going to be a grad student in this lab for the next four to five years. And at some point, most, if not all the people in the lab will be people who only know you as the grad student and not the research assistant who used to do these other tasks, Um, which, again, is one, that's a good thing. So I think some of this will fade away, could fade away over time. But why it's also important for you to reestablish your what's on your plate and reestablish your boundaries now as new people, as people go out of the lab and new people come into the lab. And, and the last thing, Mike, that I think is worth saying is clearly you've proven yourself to be a valuable member of this lab. I mean, the fact that, that he worked there for a year and then after that, the PI was eager to have him join as a PhD student. That's a big commitment for huge. a faculty member to take on. And, you know, a lot of times advisors, you're kind of making these decisions based on, you know, just a few weeks in the lab or in some cases like a Zoom meeting. And so the fact that your advisor has worked with you for a year and is excited to have you on as a PhD student, it means you're on the right track and you've clear, you're clearly a valuable member of this lab. But we certainly agree and affirm that it is very important to set these boundaries now. Ideally, that comes from the PI. <laughs> so you need to set up that meeting. And I think you're fully justified in, in having this conversation. And, and I think it's going to go well. I guess if it doesn't, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Did we give bad advice? If so, reply to uh, empty trash bin at podcast at hellopg.com. That's right. But yeah, Mike, good luck. And hopefully this will be uh, helpful advice for you and, and best of luck to you. All right, Josh. Well, I'm going to close up the mailbag for this week. Always entertaining to talk with you. I want to remind everybody that, you know, we we thrive on hearing from you, hearing your questions, finding out what's going on in your world, in your life. So if you do have a question or a topic idea, you can email it to us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like us, you can read leave a review on apple Podcasts. we do enjoy the feedback and it helps new listeners to find the show if you want to support us you can become a patron simply go to our website hellophd.com and click the become a patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd uh, we would appreciate the oktoberfest money and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons all right dan always a pleasure thanks to everyone who wrote in and uh nice talking to you today yeah and we'll see you next time josh see you next time <laughs>